Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaticato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine, while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm discussing how the principles of psychotherapy themselves are rooted in Western culture and what that means for our cultural competence, including the importance of social justice-informed therapy and making sure we, as clinicians, are not appointing our clients to the ever-undesired role of identified patient. Before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. I want to start this episode by saying that I have played with the idea of sharing this perspective for a long time, but I was never entirely sure of the best way to bring it up, given the complexities of the varying cultural perspectives on therapy healing the human condition, Uh, plus the fact that I am a white European American with the systemic privilege of my culture being at the forefront of what is considered to be right, the best, um, or at the very least, default. The first time I heard the phrase social justice-informed therapy was when I was poking around the website of a privately owned therapy practice in Los Angeles, one that I'm actually pleased to announce I am now working at. At the time, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, social justice-informed therapy, but I knew it struck a chord with me because I know how hard it can be to sit across from a client as a therapist and know that what ails them goes way beyond the trauma they experienced as a child and moves into modern, current, day-to-day marginalization, misrepresentation, systemic abuse, oppression, and neglect. A few episodes ago, I talked about how employers like to use the term burnout in order to, I mean, essentially gaslight wavering employees, when really they should be taking a look at the organization to ensure it's not actually creating an environment that offers opportunities for moral injury or burnout or exhaustion or compassion fatigue or whatever that is, Uh, cynicism, complacency. In other words, the systems that we are a part of influence our lives heavily. You don't live in a bubble. Therefore, everything that you struggle with is not necessarily coming from within. And if you're familiar with systems theory and psychology, you know this, but oftentimes we only apply that to family systems. It's easy to see it in a family system, especially if we're working with the whole family because they're in the room and we can see the dynamic and we can see how every individual part impacts the whole and therefore all of the other individual parts. But we hardly branch out to recognize how work environments local communities, religious communities, cultures, larger societies, and their politics dictate our lives, especially if you happen to be somebody living on the fringe of any of those systems. In other words, you either don't conform to them 
or you're not accepted by them. And as therapists, I think it's really important that we involve that in the therapy room. A lot of times as therapists, we're taught, you know, obviously not to bring our political opinion into the room and and, and take any sort of dogmatic approach to therapy. And of course, that's true. This isn't about us kind of making any declarations or getting up on a soapbox in our therapy room with our clients. But we need to be informed about these things. We need to be informed about how, whether or not we agree that it's the truth that our clients are dealing with systems of their own. And our lack of agreement with that may simply be just our lack of exposure to it. In other words, for folks who maybe believe that racism does not exist anymore, folks who feel like, well, you know, slavery is over, the Jim Crow era is over, everybody has equal opportunity, we've had a black president, what are you saying that there's still racism? If we're bringing that judgment into the therapy room with a, a client who happens to be black, we're not going to actually hear their experience. We're not going to hear what they're struggling with and how the world that they live in impacts the struggle that they carry with them. So we have to have at least an openness to understand that people are bringing in experiences and values that maybe we don't know because we haven't lived in their skin, but that it's their reality nonetheless, and it impacts their mental health. Being a trauma-informed clinician is not just about the trauma of the past. We have to recognize the ongoing day-to-day trauma that our clients experience at the hands of the systems they live in and that we ourselves may actually benefit from. My very first client as a therapist was a black woman. And I had so much care for her throughout our time together. And she was my first client, so she'll always have a place in my heart. But I was always a little intimidated by working with her because I knew that I could never truly understand her experience as a black woman. And I felt that having a young white therapist was actually a disservice to her. And we discussed that often in our therapy. We had to acknowledge when our cultural differences, when our experiential differences were limiting my ability to serve her in the way that she needed to be served. And I think that was a very positive thing that we were able to have those conversations and name those obstacles in the room. And we did work well together. We had great rapport and we learned a lot from each other. But was there somebody better suited for her to allow for deeper work to unfold for her without the barriers of race, without the different experiences that we have in this world? And my good but not always effective intentions more so, could she have benefited more from a therapist who was not the very face of her oppressor? In other words, no, I'm not a slave owner. My ancestors were not slave owners. I was not alive during the Jim Crow era. And yet, I am the face of the privileged, the descendants of the culture that decided my race was worth more than hers. And I continue to benefit from that system, just the same as she continues to be harmed by it, regardless of whether or not I personally believe it should be that way. So I am the face of her oppressor. And here I am being some kind of an authority figure, not entirely, but there is a power dynamic in the therapy room. You do go to your therapist seeking guidance and answers and uh, sort of checks and balances system and sanity checks sometimes, right? And so what happens to you if you are a part of a marginalized or oppressed community and the people that you can go to for those things are not only personally embodying a, a, a privilege or a different set of values, but the profession upholds that. 
We'll always have differences with our clients. There will always be something we don't understand about them. Experiences that we've never had, that they have had, and vice versa. So this isn't to say that we need to be working with our identical twins or no one at all. But I will say that my cultural competence training as a therapist did not quite prepare me for the guilt and doubt that I felt in the room with her, the inadequacy that I felt in the room with her. Because in Western psychology, we view our main principles as the default, and anything outside of that is other. Andrew Samuels, who is a British white psychotherapist and writer, wrote an essay called What Does It Mean to Be in the West? And he discusses Western culture and its impact on mental health. He says that in the West, we are agonizing over our identity and what the West even means, which is really interesting considering that it's the default setting of pretty much everything, but yet we're still not entirely sure of what it even means. He also notes that Carl Jung himself despaired over the, quote, one-sidedness of what the West had become, how it is over-dependent on rationality, materialism, loss of purpose and meaning, and that our minds and our bodies are split. This is the masculine excess that I talk about. The absence of feminine in the West is palpable. And if psychotherapy has its roots in a masculine-dominated culture, what does that say about psychotherapy itself as we know it? In therapeutic training, we are taught the importance of cultural competence. There's no doubt about that. But not much is done to hold us accountable to the depths of what that actually means. And Samuels, in his essay on the West, notes that psychotherapy itself, as we know it, is a Western philosophy. He discusses transcultural therapy, which is to say that in order for therapy to be as culturally competent as it wants to be, it has to traverse other cultures. And not just do what we are sort of trained to do, which is wait for the differences to show up in the room and then adapt on an individual basis. In other words, he says that the principles of psychotherapy say that there is a here and there is a there. We are domestic providers. And when somebody from another cultural background walks in the room, they are now the foreigner. And we have to recognize the differences and then move along with therapy. But just recognizing that difference isn't enough. And moreover, by doing the here and there thing, we're kind of creating this us and other thing. There is no here and there. There are myriad cultures with different, beautiful, nuanced perspectives on the human condition and what heals suffering. And that instead of seeing ourselves as domestic and our culturally diverse clients as foreign, we need to see all of us as foreign. We need to individualize our therapeutic approach so much based on so many details that you never assume there's someone walking in the room that you know culturally. Samuel says that to treat every client as though they are foreign rather than treat everyone as domestic and adapt only when you have determined a set of cultural values different from yours is the way to implement transcultural therapy. And that's from a theoretical approach, right? But even if you look at like the ethical parameters of our field, those ethics are informed by Western standards, the guidelines that dictate how we interact with clients, what enacts our mandatory reporter status, with clients, how we assess and treat for suicidality with clients, the appropriateness of our relationships with clients. All of these things are determined by Western philosophies and values. And beyond just Western perspectives, it's rooted in privileged 
Western perspectives, not impoverished Western perspectives or Eastern traditions, but privileged Western values, as though that is the standard everyone else should be held to. And a lot of times what that does is it perpetuates the systemic oppression because we are now either withholding ourselves from folks who need us because they don't have the resources to access us, or when they do access us, we are not holding space for what they truly need because we are asking them to conform to a different set of values than what they believe. And of course, there's safety and legality issues involved in that. But beyond that, are we really broad enough in terms of our transcultural services that we are able to even recognize those smaller differences. The thing that keeps coming up for me in terms of this is the, sh- the show Shameless, which I've just recently started watching. It's been out for about 10 years, so I'm, I'm really behind on the curve, but it's about this family who lives on the south side of Chicago. They're a white family, and I'm assuming European descendants, and uh, they're really they're, they're impoverished. They are living way below the poverty line. It's a family of eight. Mom has bipolar disorder, and she's often not even around. Uh, Dad is an alcoholic. He's often incapacitated. The older sister had to drop out of high school so that she could take care of her five younger siblings. And there's a part later on, probably like in season three or something, where the, the older sister finally gets an office job. And this is the first time that the family sees any steady income. And she actually has health benefits and all of these things. And she's she gets really excited because she's like, now we get to finally move toward the poverty line. Because they're so below the poverty line that her now getting this job means that maybe they can actually reach it for once. And when you live in that culture where... You know, education is deprived of you. Your socioeconomic status makes everything way more difficult for you. You're in survival mode all the time. And that impacts your value system. That impacts what you're willing to do in order to survive. And in that is a need for mental health resources, especially when you've got dad's an alcoholic, mom has bipolar disorder. Off the bat, they need some resources there. But even the emotional dysregulation of the family in response to all of the constant trauma that they are experiencing because of their socioeconomic status, because of their inaccessibility to education and to stable, safe housing and the financial resources that they need to not be stressed out all the time, to keep food on the table, to not worry about becoming homeless. It creates a culture that you know, psychotherapy, again, through a privileged Western philosophy, can't always manage. There's, there's, off the bat, there's going to be a lot of ethical issues with that, right? And there are storylines in here where child protective services is involved because there's perceived abuse or there's neglect. Um, There's a lot that happens in there that does need to be tended to in order to keep the people involved, especially the children, safe. But apart from that, If, let's say, if you're familiar with the characters, if Fiona, the older sister, decided that she wanted to go to a community clinic to get a little bit of low-cost therapy for herself to manage the emotions that come up with all of the heartbreak and trauma that she has experienced, is she going to be met by somebody who respects where she comes from and that she has a different set of values in order to survive 
the hardships that she deals with? Or is she going to be met with somebody who asks her to conform to their value system because that's the healthier value system? Therefore, perpetuating the systemic oppression by even saying, even when you go try to seek out mental health support, you're going to be put into a box that doesn't understand you, that's maybe making you feel like you're doing something wrong, and therefore, in the end, isn't really helping. And by the way, I want to call out that 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 example is with a white family. Add race into that picture and make that family a black family. Now you're also dealing with myriad other issues in their day-to-day life that therapy still may not be able to hold hold space for. And of course, our goal is safety and healing, right? Of course. But perhaps there are other ways of seeing those things that go beyond the parameters of that privileged Western ideology. What it looks like to maintain safety and healing when you have the resources that you need versus when you don't have the resources that you need and when everything seems to be working against you. Being a therapist is about making judgment calls too, that our individual values as well as the ethical values of our given license or credential are informing. And there are communities that are not going to feel welcomed or seen or validated or heard and therefore helped if we are offering a one-size-fits-all approach to healing the human soul. And this isn't to say that that's what therapists do, is they just have a one-size-fits-all approach. But I think by recognizing that the foundation of psychotherapy is so deeply rooted in a privileged Western philosophy, that's something that I think is pretty unconscious to us. You know, I think we bring into the room a sense of curiosity and openness to diverse situations and experiences. And we, we want to get to know you. And we're not in there to sort of impart our belief system on you. But when we don't recognize that the entire structure of psychotherapy is so rooted in Western philosophy, that we're unconscious to the fact that even just by nature of the way that we introduce ourselves and the framework that we utilize in the room is biased. It is very culturally one size fits all. So the reason I'm bringing this conversation up isn't to say that we have this massive problem in mental health that needs to be fixed. I think there is a problem and I think it does need to be fixed, but I don't think that it is this huge uh, egregious thing that is going on. It's just we need to become a little bit more conscious to the systems involved as a whole, including the system of mental health. And recognizing that even within Western culture, there are subcultures that that are informed by socioeconomic status, race, nation of origin, faith, the degree of survivalism that needs to happen in the community and other factors that contribute to the development of different value systems, value systems that we may look at sideways coming from a, a privileged Western philosophy of psychotherapy, but are true and valid nonetheless. And that all of them are represented in the ethical or theoretical guidelines of psychotherapy. So safety and legality aside, is it our job to bring our clients to our cultural values because we have figured out a model that implies high-functioning, well-adjusted success? Or is it our job to meet our clients in their value systems and help them strengthen them and grow from there? And again, folks in lower socioeconomic situations may not have access to mental health at all, despite the critical need for it. But when they do get it, They may be facing a system that doesn't include them, a system that's made up of values that they don't agree with, a system asking them to conform to one way of living. And are we holding ourselves accountable to ensure that we're helping our clients 
live their values out loud, not ours. We have these ideas of what cultural competence looks like, but how are we holding ourselves accountable to that? How are we reminding ourselves? How are we not letting that fall through the cracks? It's very easy to overlook and not see it objectively, especially when we're typically dealing with so many other things like assessing for risk factors and making sure a client um, in crisis can be stabilized and diagnosing and making sure that we are complying with all of these other ethical and legal parameters and, and boxes that we have to check off. It's very easy to overlook these types of things. And when it comes to working with clients from different backgrounds as yours, Samuels, this is the author of that article that I was talking about, the essay, he also argues that intention needs to be examined. If we're white clinicians focusing our work on communities of color, we have to ask ourselves why. And very critically, our intentions have to be deeper than to help or to do good or because I care. There's an account I follow on Instagram called No White Saviors. And a few months ago, they put up a post that read, white folks who work in black, brown, indigenous communities anywhere in the world need to understand blank before attempting to work within our communities. And the ask was for commenters to fill in the blank. And comments included um, that your presence is a symptom of colonialism, so remain humble. The power dynamic of your whiteness can bring harm with it. That you need to do your own work to recognize your privilege before coming into our spaces with all of the answers. That your way of seeing the world is not the default or only way of seeing it. There are a lot of really rich comments under that post, which I read and reread and reread as a clinician who at present works with a diverse population of folks. And I will always have people coming into my office with experiences that I can't speak to. Now, I don't necessarily specifically work with people of color, but the particular population that I work with is a diverse population. From the perspective of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people, which, by the way, I am not claiming to be an expert on by saying this. I'm just echoing their comments. White people show up in those spaces not truly understanding our cultural values and the problems that other folks have endured because of them. And so we try to double down on our values. We try to impart our values on them because we have figured out some things that have worked, that feel positive, that seem like they make sense, that, you know, are some ideas about the human psyche that may help them out. But we're not considering that the ideas we have about the human psyche it's not the only solution. Now, this is not to say that psychotherapy as we know it from its Western roots is not for people from other cultural backgrounds. Now, I'm not saying that psychotherapy is just for white people or for European Americans or I'm not saying that kind of thing. It's not a call to make psychotherapy a white practice that only white people can benefit from psychotherapy. Of course not. But this is to say that if we are therapists wanting to help a diverse array of folks, especially if we are specifically trying to work with a group of people different from us, that we have to recognize our perspective, as it is, is not diverse. That our psychotherapy is rooted in only one framework of ideology, and that it's not necessarily the cure or the solution for all human suffering, especially if it infringes upon or ignores the cultural values of others. And we must especially be careful of this if we are white or white passing and have experienced the privilege of that, because part of our privilege meant we never had to consider any other side of things. We never had to experience certain struggles. Therefore, our solutions are limited. They can only go so far. 
Over the last few years, I've really dug into my privilege as a white person in America, where I have had to move through the discomfort of recognizing how the things that were aligned with my identity also happened to be the things that were considered successful in Western culture. So take, for a small example, the idea of professionalism. Professionalism means to dress a certain way, communicate a certain way, have a certain kind of body language and persona. We know that to be a rule and we mimic it so that we can get the results we're hoping for, the successes we want. We're, we're um, fluent in the language of whatever that game is. And so long as we have the financial means and the educational opportunities and the technological resources and the general ingrained sense of this idea of professionalism, because it comes from the European colonialist culture that I'm bred from, it's pretty easy to pull off. What about people in lower socioeconomic communities who don't have the financial means to afford what we would consider to be a professional outfit? What about those to whom good education is not afforded? What about people from cultural backgrounds beyond European who see professional qualities in a different light? But because the Western culture doesn't know what to do with it, we judge those people. We ridicule them. We demand them to conform, despite the fact that they have nothing done nothing wrong other than present a different perspective of what it means to be professional. I read something online the other day. It may have been on Instagram, and I'm sorry if I can't remember who posted it. And I just want to put out there, I'm going to be sharing really good Instagram accounts that I recommend following at the end of this episode and on the transcript of, of this, uh, because I learn a lot from people on Instagram. And I don't want you to just be listening to me. I want you to go directly to them as the resource, as the people who are doing this work and sharing this work and support them. But this particular article was about a white woman who's going around helping out, helping out young black men by cutting off their dreads so that they could fit in and have better lives. <laughs> what? Why are we stripping people of their cultural richness in order to fit in when we should instead be widening what we are willing to accept? So instead of asking him to remove a part of his physical identity that he he's entitled to, how about you make his life easier by not treating him like a criminal or a thug because he has dreadlocks? So when we're talking about cultural competence as psychotherapists, we have work to do. We have to be paying attention to other ways. If we use that as a metaphor, that story about the dreadlocks as a metaphor, how might we be doing that in some untraceable ways? And I include myself in that, of course. But before we can do that work, we have to truly, really dig into ourselves and recognize and accept that most of what we subscribe to, even in the best interest of others, is limited. In his essay, Andrew Samuels drops a really powerful line, which I think is the starting point to where we go next. And that line is, quote, in sum, the underlying cultural complex of Western psychotherapy is its lack of interest in anything else, end quote. So chew on that for a bit. I want to talk for a minute about diversity itself in psychotherapy. So statistics and barriers for diversity among therapists in the U.S., according to the APA, the American Psychological Association, in 2016, they reported that 16% of the psychology workforce was comprised of racial ethnic minorities, among psychologists, at least. I, I haven't been able to find data on master's level clinicians, but among psychologists, which requires a PhD, at least 6% are Hispanic, 4% are Black, 
3% are Asian and 85% are white. So again, it's a little hard to gauge because not every mental health professional is a psychologist. And especially at the PhD level, you're going to see more barriers to that education depending on cultural background, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. But we have to ask ourselves, apart from that, what are the barriers to these jobs for non-white people? And what does it say that so few non-white people are entering this field? Is it because of those barriers that I just spoke about? Or is it because they're not represented in the fabric of it? So why echo its teachings? What's going on? I don't know. And so, you know, moving back into our clientele, different cultural backgrounds are not the only things that require social justice informed therapy. The LGBTQ community is chock full of white people who still, despite their white privilege, experience other forms of marginalization, violence, and abuse. And quite down to it, I would say the mentally ill themselves, whatever that category is comprised of, can be included in that category. And that's because of what I said at the top of this episode about Carl Jung's disappointment in the one-sidedness of Western culture. Because what I talk about ad nauseum here, (laughs) about how we live in a masculine-driven culture with no respect for the feminine or any values beyond what it rigidly holds dear, anybody outside of the status quo is deemed unacceptable. And the status quo is driven by masculine values. When you look at the structure of psychotherapy in the West, it's essentially asking for conformity. If the roots of psychotherapy are in Western ideology, then they are drowning in capitalist ideology, where we want the members of our society to be well-behaved and productive, contribute to the economy, participate in the work that we need to do to keep the culture moving forward. But sometimes I think we get so worried about moving the culture forward in terms of advancements that we don't seem to care about the people we're leaving on the side of the road, the people who can't keep up, the people who don't want to keep up, the people who value other things, because we're moving at a pace not meant for all of humanity. Because some people have certain sensitivities, they have different abilities, they have different values. The truth is, the West wants to tell you what values comprise it, but it doesn't actually know. So it just keeps moving at lightning speed, perhaps so that it never has to answer that question, so that we can keep producing and keep developing more material excess and rationality while our mind-body split remains. We suffer and we ditch those who can't keep up with us. Again, that's the split of, you know, holding masculine values, productivity, materialism, action in higher regard than spirit, connectivity, vulnerability, peace. And oftentimes those who can't keep up include those who struggle with their mental wellness in a more severe way. I'm going to tell a story right now that I want to be clear is not moralizing medication. It is not uh, demonizing medication. It is not making a decision about medication in general, but just looking at medication from the highest level where pharmacology tends to be our first and last resort when it comes to mental illness. When I was in graduate school, I did this project for my psychopharmacology class, and that's a class about prescription drugs. And I put together a video that I called Medicating Rock and Roll. And essentially, I took nine songs from various artists, many artists who 
publicly struggled with their mental health, like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix. And I use their lyrics as though they were their presenting issues, as though they were clients who walked into the office and said, on a Sunday morning sidewalk, I'm wishing Lord that I was stoned because there's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. That's a Johnny Cash lyric, one that, especially set to the song itself, makes my heart ache, like physically ache. And so in this situation, I pretend I'm a psychiatrist and he's my client and he comes in saying that to me and I have to identify what his symptoms are and diagnose him and then figure out which medication would best solve his problems. And the truth is, if Johnny Cash was put on an antidepressant, he would likely feel happier, but he'd probably not have anything left to say. He'd probably never write another song. And if he did, he'd probably grow heartsick over how much of his creativity was lost in that process. I believe medications can be very helpful for people. Medications are necessary for some people. This is not a rail against pharmacology at all. This is maybe sort of throwing into the light that maybe we resort to that too much and too quickly and too easily. But also that by doing that, we don't see the big picture, which is that, again, this this idea is kind of going back to community care versus self-care a little bit and this idea that people who are majorly depressed in our culture oftentimes that depression gets worsened or perpetuated by an an individualistic society that is not prioritizing connectivity and vulnerability and all of the feminine qualities in other words i'm not blaming society for people's depression but it's certainly not helping things and it actually has the capacity to help things depression and trauma and anxiety in communities where feminine qualities are more present where where people are nurtured where people are held together in a community setting symptoms of those things go down but in a culture where all we care about is making money and getting our cars and advancing in a materialistic world, we keep pushing those who are depressed and anxious and hurting in their hearts further and further and further and further out on the fringe where they are further isolated and that only makes things worse for them. And so my point with all of this is to illustrate that our go-to solutions for human suffering are often to suggest some sort of conformity. Take this pill so that you can rejoin the workforce and be productive and just go through the motions of things. And what do we do to artists in that situation who maybe now they're not able to create because they're, they're just conforming. They're just putting one foot in front of the other and doing what they're told to do and silencing their pain by just sort of getting in line with everybody else. What if there were other ways to help heal the pain of people? What if inclusion was the cure? What if accepting people in their introverted, introspective, weird behaviors was something that helps them instead of making fun of them or bullying them or ignoring them or not including them, not accepting them? Disrupting systems that would say, because Johnny Cash had a different way of seeing the world, he was broken and therefore needed to be fixed. Changing that perspective right? Allowing a little bit more of the feminine conversation to come into the picture. And this doesn't come in small motions. It doesn't happen overnight. But as therapists, we can help by expanding our purview of client-centered advocacy, reaching into the collective unconscious, the unconscious mythology of our Western culture, 
the mythology that informs the very critical work that we do to make sure that we're not blindly following a one-sided set of values that just by its nature does not hold space for everyone. I spent a lot of time working as a therapist in residential treatment programs and consulting with other professionals who were in similar environments. Residential treatment programs become a system of their own. Not quite a family system, not quite the system, but a system nonetheless. And the concept of conformity and the identified patient were rampant in those environments. And I'll explain what the identified patient means to those of you who don't know. It's a concept in psychology that refers to the person in the family which takes the blame for the dysfunction of the family. So a child may be brought in to see a therapist because he's acting out in school, he's getting poor grades, he's speaking disrespectfully to everybody, and overall displaying signs of distress. So he's the patient the parents want you to fix. But when you get into the therapy, you start to realize that mom and dad are always fighting. And sometimes they're even being violent with one another. The family is struggling financially, so they don't always have food on the table. And mom and dad are always stressed. And maybe your client has an older brother who bullies him all the time for being a little bit different, for having a different personality than what's expected of him. Now suddenly you're like, my client's behavior actually makes total sense given the environment that he's in. And the fact that he doesn't have effective tools or coping for the chaos that he's around. Now, that isn't to say that the client can't benefit from therapy and gaining some healthy coping skills and processing some emotions and building their ego strength and figuring out who they want to be in their life and how to get there. That could all be very beneficial to the client. But the family also has some work to do. Parents need treatment. Big brother needs to get in the room for some family sessions. The family needs resources to help their financial situation to make sure that everybody's getting taken care of. And everybody involved in the family needs an increase in healthy coping skills to deal with emotional dysregulation that it, when it comes up so that it, there isn't violence or uh, displaced anger being thrown about in the family. So the parents come in and say, just fix my kid. But as a therapist, you're looking at this saying, well, everybody included in this needs some help. It is not just the kid that is the problem. And in fact, the kid ends up taking the blame. It be they become the scapegoat. And it makes sense because the parents are having a hard time recognizing their part in it. They're struggling. They need some help. But it certainly is not all the kid's fault. So remember that concept of the identified patient because it's something that happens way more often in more than just family settings. And so going back to my experiences in residential treatment, specifically when I was working with teenagers in high crisis treatment environments, when you have a bunch of teenagers with myriad mental health illnesses living under the same roof in the same program, there are a lot of rules, a lot of rules for anybody, much less teenagers, much less teenagers with major depression, anxiety, substance use, suicidal ideation, personality disorders, eating disorders, psychosis, who are actively self-harming and so on. <laughs> and the rules are meant to maintain safety, of course, but they're also meant to keep order, to remind the kids of who's in charge and to apply behavior contingencies that help us train them back into working order, back into productive and effective functioning. But what about the systems they're in? What about the family system they came from and will return to? What about the system itself of residential treatment, a system that is imperfect, where some of your employees may be disrespectful or emotionally abusive to the kids, where some of the kids may be bullying each other, or where at the very least you have a child who is creative, spunky, curious, and by nature of his uniqueness, not going to conform to the rules very well, but is going to get punished for violating them nonetheless. 
or a teenager whose cultural background bumps up against the rules of conformity expected of him. As clinicians, we have to stop thinking that conformity means healing. That once we get somebody to behave in an ideal way, all of their problems have gone away. In fact, that tends to only make things worse. And blaming them for behaviors that don't fit into the norm is not therapeutic at all. So here's my thinking. The thing that plagues me as a therapist, the thing that I'm working to be conscious of more and more and more every day. We can harm our clients if we act as though their internal pain is theirs and theirs alone. Whether it's because a client comes from a different set of cultural values as us, or because they come from the same cultural values as us, they just don't subscribe to them. We have to recognize this. People experiencing marginalization or oppression are not generating illness from within. Rather, they are being poisoned from the outside and then receiving punishment for how they respond to that poison. And if we, as therapists, don't let that part of the conversation into the room, we're going to pathologize the wrong part of the equation. We're going to make our client the identified patient, which is essentially scapegoating them, calling them the problem when they are very much not the problem. Individual empowerment, accountability, and growth, these are great things to lead our clients to. Recognizing when a situation is beyond their control and their only recourse is to take care of themselves the best they can, this is a great way to empower people. That's important and it's worthy. But client-centered advocacy has to include an understanding of the myriad ways our clients are being harmed from the various systems in which they live. And yes, trying to do something about it in some way. So what do we do? I default back to Samuel's advice that we should frame even our, quote, domestic clients, the ones that we have deemed to have the same cultural foundation as us, to be foreigners. That all of our clients and us are foreigners. We are foreigners to them. They are foreigners to us. Samuel says, instead of making the exotic familiar, we render the familiar exotic, thereby moving each and every therapy in an individuated direction, end quote. And I think additionally, especially if you're white or white passing or somebody who's rooted in Western values personally or professionally, do your work to listen to these communities before you go into them to provide a service. Some of the folks that I follow on Instagram and always continue to learn from, I want to share them with you here so that you can learn from them too. And I'll be posting a transcript of this episode soon, which will have that list and probably will have some more uh, if that's easier for you to follow along with. So that No White Saviors account that I talked about before, it's a really, really powerful account. There's an account on Instagram called Sassy Latte. And they often discuss race and body politics, the important pieces of information that have been coming from that Instagram account, especially the last couple of weeks or maybe months over the health at every size movement. There's some really rich conversation happening there. Uh, Rachel Cargill is an academic activist and writer who is educating folks on racial history in America and the ongoing impacts of it. Uh, She also recently released a TED Talk, which I highly recommend. There's an account called Decolonizing Therapy. Uh, It's a great account run by a PhD level psychologist who discusses these very things about the culture of mental health services, how it's rooted in colonialism, uh, and how that is a disservice to so many people. 
Little Native Boy is a great account outlining the struggles of America's indigenous population and how they've become absent, really, in the landscape of politics and financial gains and health and everything that's really important. Uh, Latinx Therapy is a great account that describes itself as, quote, demystifying mental health stigmas in the Latinx community, one myth and conversation at a time. These are really, really great resources to get your information from. I know Instagram doesn't seem like uh, an encyclopedia, but really the live and creative ways that this information is being delivered to us, it's such a great uh, way to access this information. And I'll be adding other accounts and resources, book suggestions, and so on to the transcript of this episode. So meanwhile, go follow those folks on Instagram and their other various social media platforms, Patreon pages, etc. And stay tuned to the Hungry Feminine Space for more on this, to continue this conversation, for more resources and more suggestions and more conversation around this. Um, if you have any questions or follow-ups on this episode, I really want to hear from you. And you can actually check out my podcast stories highlight on my Instagram account at The Hungry Feminine, where there's a question box for your questions. Um, I would love to hear, you know, personal experiences, professional experiences, your perspective on this. If you agree, if you disagree with what I've talked about here, I would like to keep us talking about this because if if we're talking about transcultural therapy, it includes everybody. Therefore, everybody should have a voice in this conversation. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here as always. Uh, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>